so glad you're here. Uh, well, my name is Ian. Uh, it's really a joy to be with you. It's, it's, it's so cool to see people start coming back to school. It's so beautiful to see, you know, it's just kind of the, the rhythm and the routine of the years beginning to take shape. And so we have been in a series talking about faith. And uh, I'm excited for today's teaching uh, because I think it has so much of God's promise for us. But I also want to encourage you, on February 5th, that first Sunday where we have two services, I'll be talking about faith and doubt. Uh, because anytime we talk about faith, we talk about the underside, which is, well, what if I don't believe any of this? Or what if that thing I believed growing up or that thing I was told was so central just doesn't work anymore? Uh, so I'm excited about that. I, I think I've got just really uh, some beautiful clarity on what, what we need to hear collectively on that. And so I'm excited about that. And on February 12th, uh, I'm going to be kind of casting vision for who we're to be as a people, uh, just as Ecclesia, what it means for us at this moment with this sort of threshold that we find ourselves at as a church, which is just beautiful to see what God is doing, uh, how we can push into more. And so I really encourage you to uh, make a point to be here those two weeks, too. And then next week, a special treat, Carrie Lauer is teaching. Um, and if you heard Carrie Lauer last time, you may wonder what I'm doing up here. Uh, so uh, please, please make a, make a point to be here. That's just a little bit about where we are going. Now, um, if you were of a certain age, you know, maybe you had siblings and you were going out on an errand with your parents and you were finally old enough where you could say shotgun and it meant something. It was like a rite of passage, right? Like it meant something significant. Uh, our kids at their current stage of life and weight cannot ride in the front seat, but someday they will know the joys and we will know the pains of them fighting over the front seat. And I can't wait, it's gonna be great. I have a dear friend who's a pastor in Toronto, Canada, and his name is Eddie, and he is Korean. And, uh, you know, may, may, many of you can probably relate to the uh, sense of, of kind of the, the, the contrast in cultures. So he's Canadian, he's, he's culturally Canadian, but he has a lot of Korean culture that he's been brought up with. And Eddie found himself working at the biggest church in the world at the time in Seoul, Korea some 30,000 people, so like just a couple more than we have here. And Eddie was raised in Canada, and so Eddie had this sense of Canadian customs and culture. And for whatever reason, Eddie was not just on staff at this church, but he was on staff in such a capacity that he was basically the right-hand man to the senior pastor of this church. Now, if you know anything about largely Asian cultures, there's a significant honor component. And so Eddie was placed right in proximity to this, this revered pastor who was treated with, with all due reference and all due sense of honor. And one of the first days that Eddie was on the job, the team, the sort of central team is going out. They have, you know, going to lunch. And Eddie is making sure that he's trying to take care of everything for this senior pastor. He's opening the doors for him, making sure. And one of the doors that Eddie opens for the pastor is the car door. Now, in Canadian culture, it would be proper to open the front door, shotgun, for the most prominent person in the party. And so Eddie runs ahead, and he opens the front door and points demonstrably for the senior pastor to get in the front seat. 
But in Korean culture, the chairman's seat is behind the driver. So Eddie makes this big show for the senior pastor to get in the front seat, and then Eddie himself climbs into the seat behind the driver. There are three other people there, and they're all looking at him like, what are you doing? Maybe you've been in a similar situation where your expectations and the expectations of those around you were completely at odds and you didn't understand what was happening, but it became very evident to you through that terrible feeling that we get that I'm doing something wrong. Now, Eddie lasted longer than that day and has now planted a church in Toronto. This is such a funny story of how so often we miss that there are different ways of living, different questions that people are asking about the world, different situations. Now, if you were to walk outside in Princeton after church and start biting your thumb at people, nobody, people just think you're weird. Like people think you're strange, right? But if you've read Shakespeare, you'd be like, oh, that's a, that's a real insult. And, you know, in Princeton, you might have, like, Shakespearean scholars. They're like, what'd you say to me? But if you were to go around, you know, don't do this, don't do this pointing the middle finger at people, like, that would be a very different response, right? And people are like, hey, what's your problem? And in New Jersey, you might, you might meet some, uh, some very bad endings. But we have what's called social imaginaries. We have these things that guide us that we don't have to talk about all the time. We can call them culture, but it's often bigger than that. They're embodied in things like language and symbols and the actions that we take. And different cultures have different social imaginaries. Different cultures have different ways of living and moving in the world. Charles Taylor talks about social imaginaries. And I love this phrase because it's so much we live out of the flow of our imagination. We often do so many things without thinking about them because they're just intuitive. We know we should do these things. He says, the ways people imagine their social existence, how they fit together with others, how things go on between them and their fellows, the expectations that are normally met, and the deeper normative notions and images that underlie these expectations. And we could talk about so many things that fit within this wider web of a social imaginary. A social imaginary is what the sociologist Peter Berger called, uh, coined a plausibility structure. It's a way of describing the framing of assumptions and practices that determine what beliefs are acceptable, what practices are acceptable, and which are not. Leslie Newbigin says of social imaginaries, he says, it's much easier to see the social imaginary working in a different culture than in one's own culture. And maybe you've had this experience where you've gone into a place where you were decidedly not in your own culture and you realize that, that things are done differently here. And if you're a good tourist, if you're a good visitor, you're not constantly saying, why do you do that? That's weird. You're trying to embody that social imaginary. You're trying to get in step and in the flow of how people live. David Foster Wallace, in his brilliant uh, eulogy to a, a college graduating class, says uh, he basically pointed out like, that we don't often see the world around us, we don't see the architecture, but all around us, that there are things that are operating that we don't see, we don't name, but are there. And he, he coined it this uh, talk, he called it, This is Water. And he was basically saying, if you were to say to a fish, like, this is water, the fish would be like, no, this is just living. 
right? But the water is something. It is a substance that once you know it's there, you're like, oh, yes, this is what I'm looking through all the time. But for us, just like the atmosphere that we walk in, we often don't think about the different components that make up the space that we inhabit. We see different social imaginaries operating in our own day. And we see, again, how these can complement one another, how they can contrast. Just a few, uh, for example. One from science. Uh, Richard Dawkins, I I quoted this passage uh, a couple weeks ago from his book, The God Delusion. He says, an atheist, in this sense of philosophical naturalist, is somebody who believes there is nothing beyond the natural, physical world. No supernatural, creative intelligence lurking behind the observable universe. No soul that outlasts the body and no miracles, except in the sense of natural phenomena that yet we don't yet understand. And so you can trace this social imaginary in the, the imaginary of somebody that Dawkins describes and that somebody that Dawkins would say, this, this also describes myself. There are, is no possibility for some unexplained phenomena. There's no transcendent that is reaching into our finite, imminent world and causing things to happen. It's all just cause and effect. Part of his social imaginary that goes unaccounted for, and a lot of times we don't think about this when we think about science, is that there's an assumption in science that the world is orderly. Why would you run experiments that try to observe how patterns repeat if you didn't assume that those patterns would in fact repeat? If everything were completely random, then doing experiments would be a complete waste of time, right? But if you have this assumption that the world is somehow orderly, that somehow the thing that happened before might happen again in some similar way, then scientific experimenting begins to make sense. And I say all this to say, when we think about like sort of a scientific, atheist, social imaginary, faith and science don't have to be divorced from one another. Faith and science don't have to exist at odds with one another. But where faith or science become fundamentalist in their orientation, they become closed social imaginaries. They actually can't communicate with one another. And so that's one social imaginary that's operative in our world. You know, us being in a room here together, talking about Jesus giving his life for our sins, being raised from the dead for some people is the most insane use of a Sunday morning. And you know what? I understand that. That's okay, right? Because again, we're talking about different social imaginaries. Another social imaginary from pop philosophy, Charles Taylor has called our age, the world that we live in, our social imaginary, he's called it the age of authenticity, expressive individualism. If somebody were to tell you they're just trying to find themselves, they're trying to live their truth, this would really require no additional translation, right? Like if somebody were to say that to you, you would know what they were talking about. You would know this kind of existential journey that they're on. And I, this, this social imaginary that this begins to inhabit is that we are, are responsible for our own meaning, that we have to make meaning for ourselves. And in our culture, yes, we're more prone to things like individualism, consumerism as a way of finding and expressing meaning, and, and, and frankly, to deceiving ourselves. But there are profits to this social imaginary. 
The world is not going back to this collective mindset. You know, we kind of live in this world as it is. And for many people today, to set aside their own path, James K. Smith says, in order to conform to some external authority doesn't seem comprehensible as a form of spiritual life. The injunction is, in the words of a speaker at a New Age festival, only accept what rings true to your own inner self. And we live in this world that is first experience as individuals, as what rings true. And again, that's not all bad. That's often a doorway and a vehicle for God to express his presence. I think we tend to set these things against each other, but we have to see it for what it is. Because the, the lie that then gets told is that you are responsible for your own existence. And not just the fact that you're here, but making meaning out of your life, making something significant. And that's what we talked about so much. That pressure is exhausting. That pressure that you have to literally create yourself from nothing is exhausting. Alan Noble says this. He says, the most fundamental truth about existence in our world is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose, of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my values, of electing where I belong. If I belong to myself, then I'm the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I am okay. I belong to myself. Again, this is hard, hard work. And the story of the scriptures is that you are a unique individual designed one of one by God in the image of God. But you do not belong to yourself. And that is not God being an overly active helicopter parent trying to have this one, one form that he's trying to compress you in. That's God setting you free to be a truly free and liberated person. But the myth of modernity tells us that we belong to ourselves and that we are responsible for ourselves. Lastly, one from American culture, a social imaginary, and it's common in the church. We have trouble extracting what it means to be a follower of Jesus with what it means to live a successful middle-class American life. Again, none of this is all bad, so please hear me on say this. Like, these social imaginaries are, are relatively neutral for the most part. They're trying to help us to see. But, you know, we strive for the suburban house, the 401k, safety and security. Again, not bad in and of themselves. But when attaining and sustaining those things becomes the goal and become our intrinsic values, you could see where we might have issue with a Jesus who says to us, sell all you have and follow me. These things are set in tension for us. And we, we struggle to live in the midst of that tension. These are just some of the social imaginaries that are operating. And today, as we look at the scriptures, we're going to look at one social imaginary that Jesus unpacks as a way of, of showing himself and showing and revealing the beauty of God and the, the beauty of what it means to live in light of who he is. So we're going to turn over to John chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can turn over there. If you have your phone, you can pull that up. John chapter 9. Friends, I love John's gospel, and this is good, good stuff. Verse 1. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man 
or his parents that he was born blind. Now notice what's happening here. We're getting insight into the disciples' social imaginary. We often get insight into people's social imaginaries by the questions they ask. And the questions they they ask, especially in response to suffering, And in their framing of the world, and this was taught by various rabbis of their day, there was a connection between a person's experience in the world and their righteousness. It's almost karmic. This direct correlation between something that happened and an outcome that then was expressed. Now, this is the exact hypothesis about suffering that the book of Job completely undermines, right? Friends, if you are suffering here today, I want to say to you that it's not because of something that you've done. That is not who God is. Now, unless you have a direct word from God, Paul talks about very specific situations where sometimes, hey, you're suffering because you're ignoring this thing. But unless that's you, you're probably suffering because we live in a fallen, broken world that Jesus came to redeem. But for these disciples, as they see this man born blind, they're trying to ask Jesus about the nature of suffering. They said, okay, we kind of have a social imaginary for this. Either his parents sinned or this man sinned. Who was it? And Jesus responds beautifully in verse 3. He says, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Now, I want to say, in response to what I just said. Now, it might sound, as you read that verse, that it's saying, that Jesus is saying, this man was born blind. He lived his life born blind for however 30-something years in order that at some day, at some point in time, Jesus would cross this man's path and would heal him, and that would reveal the glory of God. There's some stuff going on here in the Greek where there's a purpose clause that's attached to a different phrase. I don't think Jesus is saying, yes, we, me and God in our eternal wisdom made this man born blind so that we could heal him, so that John could write about it later, so that God's glory would be revealed. Jesus is saying that we have to walk in the light of day while it is light. Jesus is saying that in this man's life, the glory of God will be displayed, yes. But he's not saying that this is a direct correlation between these two things. Jesus goes on. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. Jesus performs some strange miracles throughout the scripture. Jesus takes some strange roots to accomplish his good ends. He spits on the ground, spreads mud on the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now later this man probably could have said, Jesus, did you have to spit on my eyes and make mud? Because I've seen the other stories where you just said, be healed, and that seemed to work just fine. But for whatever reason, Jesus in this story takes this particular practice. Jesus is making the mud with his spit, sets up a confrontation between himself and the religious leaders. When the man later tells of his experience to those investigating the healing, he tells exactly what Jesus did making the mud. And in a strange way, it's this act of making the mud that they center in on. They know this man has been healed. They know he was blind 
from birth, but they're focused in on Jesus making mud with his spit and rubbing it on this guy's eyes because that is a violation of the Sabbath and their reading of it. Now, in some teachings of the rabbis during this time, to knead bread on the Sabbath, to work a loaf, was a violation of the prohibition from working. Now, we see how this has kind of gone into hyperdrive here. But this is all setting up a confrontation. If you read John's Gospel, Jesus is in control of every confrontation. He's setting them all up. He's playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. John is setting up this masterful contrast in this episode. John is telling the stories. He's telling the story of the master. John is doing his own masterful artistry. The unnamed man in the story begins the story with the inability to see. The religious leaders will soon be shown to be unable to see Jesus. And it's in their inability to see Jesus. Even though they're able to see physically, but their refusal to heed Jesus' words, to see that he is revealing God to them, will show themselves to be the ones who are blind. Now, friends, the scriptures do not set up a contrast between things like faith and science or faith and reason, all these different things that we could try to set at different poles from one another. But they do set up a contrast between being wise in one's own eyes and receiving the light and sight that only comes from an encounter with Jesus. God is wanting to integrate our world. Jesus is the light of the world. And faith has an ability to see and perceive because it is illuminated by the very light of the world, the one through whom God at the very beginning said, let there be light. Faith sees the world differently than the reigning social imaginaries that we inhabit every day. But it sees the world rightly. Through the eyes of the love of God, the assurances of his promises, and the hope that we have in him. God is wanting to give us sight, insight, knowledge, understanding of what he's doing in the world through faith, by encounter with Jesus. And when we ignore Jesus' voice, when we ignore what he's trying to say to us, we stay in our blindness. Romans 1 says this so poignantly, and I encourage you to reflect on this passage. When we ignore Jesus, when we turn ourselves off to that fountain of love, it's not just that we somehow move ourselves further away from God. We have a darkening of our minds. Our thinking becomes clouded. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice of those who by their injustice suppress the truth. And pay attention to the language about truth, mind, thinking in this passage. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been seen and understood through the things God has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind 
and to do things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of injustice, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul is relentless. That a, a mind that will not turn itself towards the revelation of God's love and light in the person of Jesus will not just be darkened, but it will result in injustice. It will result in idolatry. It will result in fractured relationship, fractured relating to creation, to one another. Paul is just surveying. Paul is not making any incisive accusations here. And if you've read Romans, you know that Paul is doing this very intentional surveying. He's sort of circling the plains. And he's sort of starting with things that everybody knows are wrong. And then he just keeps going, Romans 3. He's like, oh, but you also... He's doing this very incisive work. But here we see that Paul's just saying, look at the world, and here's why. He's trying to give insight into why this is the way it is. And central to our story back in John's gospel, back in John 9, is seeing and believing. Now look at this interrogation scene. So this man is now to be questioned about this healing that he's received from the hands and the mud and the spit of Jesus. John 9, verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. You know, we do this, right? Something amazing has happened. Like, there has to be a reason that it cannot be that amazing. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Remember the question started being asked, who was the sinner? The parents or the man born blind, now Jesus is being called a sinner. We know this man is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see, said the man. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, this man, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why, do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I really like how salty this man born blind is. Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, notice what they say. You were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us. And they drove him out. So the conclusion that they reach by their interaction with this man who has been healed by Jesus is that he was born in sin. And yet Jesus, the very beginning of the passage, says, nope, wrong. The conclusion that they've reached is that Jesus is not from God. But throughout John's gospel, over 20 times, John says explicitly, Jesus is the one sent from the Father. And even the pool that Jesus sends the man to be washed in is called Siloam, which means sent. And this man, as he's being interrogated by these religious leaders, simply bears witness to what Jesus has done. Not only will the religious leaders not hear Jesus, they will not hear the testimony about what he's done. 
Now, this man's sarcasm is epic and deserves to be enshrined in Scripture. But simply bearing witness to his experience with Jesus, he speaks correctly. He is the one who understands. He is the one who sees. But the religious leaders confirm by their conclusions that they don't see they don't see the results of what happened. They don't, they don't see how it could have happened in the first place. And they don't see Jesus. And Jesus will further confirm the holistic healing of this man. Again, healings in the Bible, as we talked about during our series on healing, are never ends unto themselves. They're never about just the physical malady that's been changed. They're about us encountering Jesus. And so it says at the end of that passage, they drove him out. This man has been put out of the synagogue, which was the local gathering of believers. And again, this guy wasn't going to go start his own church. Right? You kicked me out, I'm going to go do my own thing. That's not how people perceived, that was not their social imaginary. There was an intense connectiveness in their social imaginary. To be ostracized from the people of God was to be ostracized from God himself. So these people have driven this man out of the synagogue. And Jesus, being full of compassion and full of wisdom, goes and he finds this man. He goes on in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? I love this answer. He says, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, This is beautiful. You have seen him. Never before this moment could it have been said to this man, you have seen. But now Jesus, with all the love of heaven, stares into this, the face of this man that he has healed, and he says, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. Now, you never want to be in a position where you're asking questions to Jesus. That basically, the, the, the character of them is, you're not talking about me, are you? Some of the Pharisees who were with Jesus heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. And notice the way this narrative has been tightly orchestrated. First, the speculation, who was born in sin? This man or his parents? Well, neither. But now, the inability to see Jesus for who he is means that those who purport to be able to see are in fact those who are blind and those whose sin remains. Not because Jesus is saying, you know, I, I want to hold this over your head. Not because Jesus is petty or cruel, but because the only way to have our sins removed is to give them to the one who can hold them, the one who has paid for them. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. This is who Jesus is. He delights to give us grace. This is his absolute desire. But we can, because we have this exceptional power of choice, we can harden our hearts against him. And Jesus' question is the only one that matters. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And I love the man's answer because he's not sure. He's like, I think so, but tell me who he is. And Jesus says, you have seen him. 
And central to faith that responds holistically to Jesus is not just seeing him, but hearing his voice and responding with belief and obedience. And the man responds, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. In this brief moment, we have the life of faith, responding to Jesus with belief, giving our hearts to him in our whole heart, soul, mind, strength, in offering, in thanksgiving, and offering of life to Jesus. And the Pharisees condemn themselves with their own question. Surely you don't mean that we are blind. Jesus says, you've said it. So, how does Jesus begin to upend our social imaginary? Now, I, I want to say this very plainly, especially when we talk about scriptures that involve healing. You may be sitting there like, you know what? If God would just heal me, if he would just fix this yeah, I would believe him too. Like, I'd be all in on that. If he would heal my body, if he would fix this relationship, if he would get me that job. And again, I, I, I'm not condemning this. I, that's a very real response. Like, this man receives healing, and now he's confronted face-to-face -face with Jesus. And he responds in worship. You may be sitting there today and be like, yeah, I would do that too. And Jesus kind of holds this tension he says to Thomas in a situation later on after he's risen from the dead, he says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And friends, resting in the promises and the word that God has spoken can sometimes feel like you are living in a delusion. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The contrast between spiritual blindness and the freedom of sight is the ability to hear God's voice and to trust him. And that's where we, we sort of live with this tension and this paradox. God doesn't promise in the immediate that everything is always going to work out. But he does promise that his voice will never fail to come to us. That he will whisper in the darkest night. That he will never leave us or forsake us. And even if in the immediate everything is not perfect and the way we would design it in the end, it will all be brilliantly lighted by the very presence of God, that there will be no more death, no more pain, no more strife between us, no more longing, because God himself is in our midst. And so we hold, and again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We live in this already, but not yet, and that can be a very fragile place to be, but Jesus comes to the fragile places and the fragile people, and he is holding it all together that nothing should be lost. And so if that's you today, I, I, I think that God has a word for you, that he has not left you, that he has not abandoned you, that you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, and you will see it in eternity forevermore because there are pleasures and delights at his right hand that will never be exhausted. But I think for so many of us too, it's not that we somehow turn off God's voice, we just don't approach it. And notice, Jesus, there's this interplay in this story between seeing and hearing. Jesus is almost saying, by hearing rightly, you can see. But it's the ones who don't hear Jesus' voice that can't see. Jesus will say this in John 10. He says, my sheep know my voice. They respond to it. And I think so often we mistake 
the voice of God, for the voice of our circumstances, for the voice of the things that are happening to us or around us. One of the things we say so often around Ecclesia is that words create worlds. And so many of us are living in absolute despair, shame, or apathy because the words that are creating our worlds are not God's, but the voice of the inner critic, the voice of fear, the voice of shame, the voice of others. And I, friends, I say none of this to condemn you but rather to invite you to hear Jesus, inviting you to see, inviting you to hear him. All the goodness of God's presence and kingdom are available to us. As Jesus says in Matthew 4, we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is not some settled interpretation, not dogma, facts about God. It is a new social imaginary a new way of seeing in the world, the promise that forgiveness, love of enemies, joy, peace with God, wisdom, hope are all part of our inheritance right here and right now. And they all start with a promise and with a word that you are not your own, that the social imaginaries that are given to us don't fit in God's kingdom, that throughout his life, Jesus was confronted and condemned because he was upending the social imaginaries, saying things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Saying things like, yes, though you may destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. Paul says it this way, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who believe. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In contrast, God is why you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Faith has a way of seeing that our world does not know. It is offered. It is an invitation. But for us, as we're gathered here in this place, what a shame for us if we just accepted the scripts that were given to us, the lenses, the social imaginaries, and didn't see the world through the beautiful, through the, the magnus like scope of the promises of God. Friends, today, as we come to this communion table, I simply want to make space for God's voice here in our midst. That each week when we come to this table, we pray, come Holy Spirit. And we pray that prayer, not just as a way of sort of formally introducing the table or saying God is present, but because we as a people are a people of the very word of God. That we exist because God has spoken in the past, but not only in the past, he continues speaking. And just as this instance with the Pharisees and this man born blind, we can tune our hearts and our minds to hear Jesus, to see the world rightly, or we can ignore him and be settled in our blindness. And friends, God wants to make you come alive with the power of his word. 
but not just you. God has something through you, through the word embodied in your life, through the word made flesh, through your gifts, through your purpose, through your story to bring life to this world. This is who we are called to be. I'm going to invite our worship team and communion service to come forward. And friends, as we're talking about faith in this teaching series, I simply want to open this time by inviting you to a prayer that is, again, one of the most faithful things I can invite you to pray. It's that God, if you have a word for me, would you speak it? And I invite you just in this moment, just to focus, just to keep your attention whether you close your eyes, whether you open the scriptures on your, your, your phone or in your Bible, just, God, do you have a word for me? And here's the beautiful thing I know this works out. Sometimes it'll be like, wow, amazing. Like, that was, that was it right there, the fire. Like, absolutely what I needed to hear, the next step I need to take. Sometimes it'll be a week later, somebody will say something to you. And be like, oh, okay, there it was. And again, if the world is an accident, that could all be coincidence. We could all be deluding ourselves. But if there's a God who loves you, who gave himself for you, who is alive forevermore, who says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, I do not give as the world gives, but I give it to you fully, then below I am with you always until the end of the age. If there's a God that, that is of such quality and character, then he might have a word for you today. And you don't have to delude yourself. You don't have to hype yourself up. Just listen. He wants to give us sight. He wants to give us sight for our circumstances, to not be overwhelmed with the realities of the very hard things of life. Life is hard. And so many of us are trying to navigate it without the voice of the one who made the world. We also, we get so wrapped up in our inner critic and in the voice of shame, and God is wanting to un do all of that and he's already done it and he said this as he sat down to a meal with his friends the last night of his life he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you Just as you focus in on what God is saying to you focus on these blessed it. He said, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world. That as often as you eat, as often as you drink, you do so in remembrance of me. And remembrance doesn't just mean calling to mind some event that happened in the past. It's about bringing that past into our present. James K. Smith says that as Christians, we bring the future into our present. Our job is to remember our future. And so we live in faith assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. God, who, for those who need the consolation that their sins have been forgiven, Lord, that they don't have to carry the burden of trying to invent themselves, of trying to free themselves, of trying to give themselves pleasure or life, Lord. Would you speak that word of forgiveness, God, of redemption, God, of homecoming, Jesus. 
God, for those of us who are Christians, have been following Jesus for such a long time, but we just don't listen to your voice. We listen to every other voice. God, would you have your way as just a glimpse in these moments. God, of the power of your word, the power of your promises, that all the goodness of the kingdom of heaven is available to us as your children because you have spoken and you keep speaking. God, for those who are in despair, God, true despair, whether it be spiritual, God, whether it be mental or physical, God, would you show us by the power of your story and your word, God, that you are the God who makes a way. God, makes a way through the water for liberation. God, makes a way out of the grave for eternal life and resurrection, Lord. You are a God for whom no door is ever closed. God, I pray over individuals here. I pray over relationships. God, I pray for holistic healing today. I pray that we would hear your voice, that we would live by your story, that your kingdom, your cross, your resurrection would be our social imaginary. May it be so, Lord, as we take these elements. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. In your beautiful name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.